McNulty stunning for everyone to get up above Cargill and find Bennett. It's into the box. McNulty cut back for Roberts. It's Gary Roberts no, from Bosby. are leading in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Mark McNulty, but a good chance by Doyle for McNulty on the edge. Mark McNulty oh, short yes. for Bosby. Smashes it past McCormack. One by Doyle. Finished by the returning Mark McNulty. First left blood for Bosby. They're in dreamland early here at Bratton. There's a through ball to Jamal Lowe. Jamal Lowe's onside. The flag stayed down. Jamal Lowe. Nonchalant. Fantastic. Brilliant. Pompey will be promoted at this rate. That is it. Pompey are champions. They won League Two in the most dramatic of circumstances. The PO4 podcast with Hugh Bunce. Proud to be Pompey. Hi, Bobby fans, and welcome to PO Forecast episode 69. Well, we just keep bringing the absolutely amazing guests on the show for you guys listening. And joining me today on the show is Kevin Harper. Kevin, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Really, really delighted to be on the podcast. You know, it's been a long time since I was down in Portsmouth. Uh, I love my time there, as probably everybody knows. Uh, avid, avid fan. No, massively. Kevin, I mean, it's quite an interesting story. I'll just tell the listeners quickly that uh, one of the fans shouted you out um, on Twitter and said, you know, guys, you should get him on the podcast. And uh, I sent a one-line tweet and you came straight back. So, um, yeah, really appreciated, mate. And uh, on the show, co-hosting with me, returning as always, one of the regular co-hosts is Freddie Webb. How are you, Freddie? How's it going, Hugh? You all right? Yeah, mate, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm, mate, I'm bouncing for this. Uh, I've been excited about it all day. So I'm really excited as well. Really yeah. excited to go through some stuff. Amazing. All right. Well, let's get into it then, since we've got Kevin and his time here on, on the uh, on the podcast. So, Kevin, we tend to just start at the beginning, really. So let's go from the beginning. Um, you grew up in Glasgow. Um, and what was your path to getting picked up by Hibs as a youngster? Uh, I grew up in probably one of the roughest estates in Glasgow called Porcel Park. It was a drug ca- drug capital of Europe for a, a long time. Uh, I was one of only three black kids in the whole uh, area, and I just uh, I was one day uh, I was out playing with my friends. We were a little bit we were poor that I couldn't afford the football. Uh, I was playing with one of my friends at football, and he said, "Oh, I need to go to football training," and I said, "Well, what have I to do?" And he says, uh, I don't know. And I says, is it okay if I come with you? He said, yeah, and that's how it started, really. You know, got into, into a club, uh, Celtic North, and then played for West Park and got signed for Hibs. Uh, I was playing in a tournament, and the Hibernian manager, Alec Miller, at the time, uh, was seeing his, watching, his, watching his son, and he heard all this commotion on the other, other side. And it was uh, me doing really well, and he turned and watched the game, and he wanted to sign me there and then. That's amazing. And, yeah. And then obviously uh, went to Derby. It didn't root with Jim Smith and Steve McLaren. I uh, was there for 16, 16 months. And then uh, Tony Pulis wanted me to go to go to Portsmouth. And in fairness, I didn't know much about it. I know Jerry Craney had been there. Uh, and went there and was absolutely blown away from the first minute till uh, the last the last when I, when I left, which... It was really, really disappointing for me. I wanted to stay there for the rest of my career. To be fair. No, you've had such a journey as well. You've been to quite a few different clubs. But just rolling quickly back to Hibs, I just wanted to know um, really a little bit about you know your family and how 
Um, how do they feel about you wanting to become a professional footballer? Because obviously it's, you've grew up in a really you know, a tough estate. Um, you know, money's hard to come by. And you know, were, were your parents supportive of this this dream you had, or were they sort of, uh, you know, uh, saying maybe you should do something that had a bit more realism and, and potential to earn money straight away? No, I, th- I think I think my mum was my mum was all for it. I, you know, I think for for me that was all that I done. You know, throughout my childhood, I only played football, and then the fortunate getting signed with Hibs, and you know, I had done really really well in their their youth setup, uh, and I signed with just fifty uh, two two weeks before my sixteenth birthday. I went in as a as a YTS, which you know was very very little money, but it was obviously I think. I think it was fifty-five pounds a week. I think at that time. Well, that's what that's what I was earning. So I had to go out, get up at six in the morning, travel through to travel through to Edinburgh from Glasgow, uh, and get back sometimes at seven o'clock at night and do it again. You know, but for me, it was it was it was a dream. It was it was just something that I couldn't believe. You know, I just I really really enjoyed you know playing football. You know. I, the things that came with it, the the adulation, still don't still don't get it really. Uh, still get embarrassed about it when people ask to sign up, get get you to sign something. Uh, still get embarrassed because I'm just a, a little guy from you know a tough neighbourhood in Glasgow that you know was fortunate enough to have a talent that you know probably didn't do. Don't think I fulfilled my my talent as much as I should have. Uh, you know that's what I've got to live with, but. You know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, play with some some really really top players. When you said um, you didn't feel like you fulfilled your talent enough, why do, why do you say that? Do you think it was because of injuries in the end, or I, I think I think a bit of both. I think I think probably you know when I was I was at Hibs, I probably didn't have to try as hard as most other people. Uh, I was probably one of the most talented players in, in Scotland at the time. You know, and then uh, I had a lot. I had a lot of injuries. You know, I could, I could rhyme them off. A uh, lot of operations, but at the end of the day, I, I think it was just, you know, probably in the in the sense. I think until I went to Portsmouth, probably didn't realise what it was about. I didn't. I probably live it as much as I did when I was at Portsmouth. Uh, and I always remember, you know, the fans. You know, having having a go at me during that championship winning season, and then turning them around. You know, so for me, when when that happened, when I saw Harry bringing the players that he brought in, uh, I knew that it was either sink or swim. You know, because it was only it was only really myself, Gary O'Neill, Limboy, and Nigel Quasi that had been there for the previous regime. Uh, and for us, us sporty probably be pretty much mainstays of that team was was uh, really really. Good for me, you know, and I've got that. I've got that championship winners medal tattooed on my arm. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, and uh, we'll, go, we'll we'll come back to the um, winning the fans back, especially because a, a lot of current ports of players are, are having to deal with the, with those issues as well. But going back to Hibs, obviously a large club in Scotland, passionate fans. You could you, you could obviously go down to ports so if you, you you had a background of dealing with passionate fans while being at Hibs. How easy was it what once you got into their youth team? How easy was it to uh, progress into the first team? I, I, I progressed pretty quickly, to be honest. Uh, as I say, I, I went in at Hibs just before two two weeks before my sixteenth birthday, and I made my debut at seventeen. You know, so I was only probably in a, f- a full year by the time I made my, my made my first time first team debut, and 
from then, barring injuries, it was pretty much it in in the in the, the first team, you know, whether it was whether it was starting or whether it was on the bench. So, you know, for for that, you know, for such a young age starting out, you know, just being being a kid, you know, didn't really didn't really look at it as, you know, anything. You know, have no not really any pressure, just going out and playing and enjoying it. That was that was that was a fantastic time for me, you know, and I look at I look back in my career and I'm really, really humbled of how far I, how how I got, how much I got, you know, but with a tinge of sadness that I could have probably done more. But I think if I had if I had done more, I might not have ever went to Portsmouth. You know, and I think I would have, you know, that's how, how hard how high I regard the, the club in the sense of, you know, I would have really missed something super, you know, I would have missed the fans. I would never have known the fans. But, you know, fortunately, uh, the the footballing gods took me there. Now, you've been on quite a journey, haven't you, really, um, just to get to Portsmouth. And you were talking, Kevin, about the, the journey you had to make as a youngster from Glasgow to Edinburgh. So was it quite a big, scary move moving to Derby or did you just take that in your stride in the same sort of way you did, you know, getting over to Hibs? No, I think it, I think that was a real difficult one because I was away from my family for the first time. I was staying in a hotel for four months. You know, uh, they were in the Premiership when I went into the when I the uh, first time down, going into the into the training ground and seeing the the supercars. You know, I was used to you know very very small you know like very small BMWs, Ford Fiestas, etc. And then you go into Derby and you see you see Ferraris, you see Aston Martins, you know, and it's a totally different world. They've got their own training ground. They had massage chairs where we went to. You know, you've got Jim Smith as a manager who was, you know, well, well, well known. And Steve McLaren, an up and coming coach, and Steve Round as well. You know, so it was for me it was a little bit daunting if when I first went in, you know, for the first probably month I had didn't really have a support network as such because I was down myself. Uh, but after that, I grew into it. You know, I, I felt that probably didn't get the chances that I deserved at, at, at Derby, uh, and that's just the, that's just the way it went. You know, I've got no hard feelings against anybody. It was an amazing club. I worked under obviously Jim Smith and Steve McLaren and Steve Round, who you know are well regarded in the game. You know, Steve McLaren became the England manager and. You don't need to say anything about Jim Smith. Everybody knows how good a guy he was. So from uh, your time at Derby, you also went on loan to Walsall, if I remember. Do you think that loan spell helped develop you as a player before moving to Portsmouth? Yeah, I think it did. I was playing regularly. I was doing well as well. You know, and I was it was in the championship, you know, so I so I knew I knew that I knew the, the division, which was well the first division then, which was good. So I think that definitely you know, put me in good stead going that when I went to Portsmouth, you know, I, I to be honest, I didn't realise how big a club Portsmouth were and how how good the fans were, you know, and that's that was the biggest that was the biggest thing for me. But when I spoke to Tony Pulis to take me to Portsmouth, he sold the club to me. Uh, and he sold himself as well. You know, I still speak to I still speak to Tony as well. Uh, and he really did sell the club and that was one of the major things that I wanted to move. I wanted to play. Uh, I wasn't doing that at Derby. Also wanted to sign me, but I felt that Portsmouth was a better move at the time. And what did Tony say to you that sort of convinced you to come to the club? What in particular did he say? 
I think he, I think I spoke to Milan Mandrich as well. He was a chairman at the time, and both of them just said how how good you know the fans were. You'd be welcome here. It's a real a real togetherness, you know, in the club. It's a real family spirit in the sense of most of the fans are from the Portsmouth area. They're not far from. Uh, that's the sort of thing, and that's sort of that's some, something that I really really bought into. Uh, I felt that. It was a, it was probably a family thing. It was good where you know it was just everybody was in the football and I could concentrate on the football, you know, intently. I could I could walk about as well, you know. If, and the fans were although I got a bit of stick, you know, I still I still love even during the times I, I still love playing for the club and still love the fans as well, you know. And at the end of the day, you know, I probably had a few arguments with fans when being on the pitch, but hey, that's the way it goes. It was the passion. The passion for me was and the desire and that's how the club felt for me. It was a club going places. Yeah, so talking about talking about going places, let's have a little chat about um the promotion season that we had as such. It's it's an interesting season, isn't it? Because it's it's sort of a whirlwind as a fan, and I imagine it was as a player as well, really. But what do you think was the major change that really turned Pompey into into that division winning side? I, I think I think it was the players that we brought in, the, the players we were able to attract. Because you know, I, I remember staying up in the last game of the season, and that in the in the first division, the last game we had to beat Barnsley, and I think it was Crystal Palace had to, you know, we had to beat Barnsley with three, three goals, and uh, Crystal Palace had to get beat. Ends up Crystal Palace stayed up, we stayed up, but I think just I think you have to take your hat off to Milan for. The amount of money that he put into the club and hat and gave Harry to spend, and then you have to give Harry credit for the players of how and his network that he was to bring in. You know, I didn't think in my time at Pompey at that point would I ever be you know, be in the same pictures. Steve Stone, Mers, Yakubu, uh, you know, Tim Sherwood, people like that, Gianluca Festa. You know, I could go through the whole team. Yeah. Uh, and I think the recruitment was was fantastic, and we had a real, real team spirit of if they're going to score three, then we'll score four. If they score four, we'll score five. And I think that's what Harry brought. Harry brought, you know, a different mentality and made everybody feel that they were the best players in in the planet. So, um, do you think um, Harry and that's man management? Do you think that was the major key for Portsmouth getting promoted that season? I, th- I think it, I think it was a big factor. I think it was a big factor, but I think I think also that when Mers when Mers came in, you know, and and Steve Stone came in, it was just a totally different dynamic. I think the players that you know were there, like myself, Limboy, Gaz O'Neill, uh, Nigel Quasi, felt that we had to move to a different level of, of play. You know, because if you if you think of the the squad before that, not many. You know, it was only probably us four that get kept on. And whether that was due to, you know, just we had contracts. We, I would say, they, we were the we were the four that really stepped up to the plate and took it took the the next step from you know sink or swim sort of thing. And I think we were the ones that that, that swam. And is it interesting? It's interesting you said that because we spoke to Gary O'Neill last week, and we asked the question of you know why do you think that with all the player turnover, you know, the Redknapp kept you kept you around as such, and <clears throat> he basically said it was because you know he was a young kid and you know he didn't bother anyone, he, he trained hard, etc. But you know he's very modest about it. And why why do you think yourself was kept around in the same way? I think I think 
for me, it was just hard work. You know, I think Harry, I think Harry certainly at that time knew that he could rely on what I was going to give him. I think the fact that I could play a, a number of positions helped as well. You know, and I just worked hard in training. You know, I worked hard. You know, if I was coming back for injury, I would go and I'd go and mark Steve Stone in games because he was probably one of the fittest people. And I would just try and get fit that way if I wanted to, you know, learn about defensively, I would go and mark Mers because he was so dynamic in that. If I wanted to go and work on striking, I would go up against Ariane Dezou or Linroy because they were really strong. Or if I wanted to go and work on wide, I'd go against Matty Taylor because he was he was quick, he was strong, he was, you know, he could go both ways. You know, so for me it was just about hard work. You know, during that summer when I saw the players that Harry was bringing in, I knew that I had to do something differently. So all that pre-season, I worked really, really hard to get myself in tip-top position and in, in shape and go, you know what, yeah, at least I've gave myself an opportunity. And, you know, the first the first couple of games, I wasn't even in the in the squad. You know, I wasn't even on the bench. And then, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, you know, Steve Stone get injured. I got in and then... In the back end, Matty Taylor got in just as Steve Stone came back and I ended up playing the, the back end of the well, the second half of the season, you know, uh, left left wing back. You know, and I played I played with a, a double hernia that whole season from the start of the season to the, the second last game. So I think probably for me it was just about hard work and desire and people knew what I brought to the team. You know, they could look at me and go, if we're down the trenches then, yeah, he's going to be beside us. No, I was what, what, inter- sorry, no, go for it. No, it's all right. Um, do you, you say you played with a double hernia throughout that season? Yeah. Oh, I, I wouldn't have noticed at all. Do you, um, do you think that in the certain certain situations, players, even if they have have got a bit of an injury, do you think they should give that little bit extra and maybe play when they're not one hundred percent if the the side is in a is in a promotion race? I, I think I think, and certainly in my time, you know, I would have played through anything. If I could, you know, I think certain injuries are different. Muscle, muscle tears, etc. You can't really do it. Hernias, you can probably get away with it. You know, certain groin injuries, you can probably get away with it. You know, sprained ankles, you can get away with it to a certain point. You know, I just, for me, I just wanted to play. You know, whether it was whether we were in a promotion race or not, I'd have still wanted to play. I'd have still made my myself available until I physically couldn't. Uh, that season, I was probably on more anti-inflammatories and I should have should have took. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I wanted to play. And that was that was me showing the, the players and, you know, the staff that my dedication to the, the team and to the club is is here for, for you to see. You know, I'm available if I if you want to pick me, I'm available and I'll give you hundred percent. That's absolutely incredible, mate, because I, I think that, I mean, I, I slightly pulled my back today reaching for a book. So, uh, and I was out of, <laughs> I was out of action for, a, for at least 20 minutes. So I can't imagine playing uh, professional football at such a level of such great players um, with, with, you know, double hernia. That must have been bad, especially playing in such an athletic position as, as wing back as, effectively, because... I just wanted to quickly touch on that. That system was such an exciting system to watch. That that wing back system that Redknapp employed, and I think it was it's almost felt to me a little bit ahead of its time. Um, and now you you see it a little bit a little bit more. But what what did you feel about uh, playing that system? Do you feel it was such an attacking role to play as a defender in that sense in that role? 
I, I, just, I felt that, you know, I, I know I know that, you know, myself, Steve Stone, my my Taylor, that we and John Luca Festa to a certain point, we were probably the 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 fittest in that whole team, you know, because we had to get up and down the pitch. But I thought that it gave Mer so much license to go and do what he was very good at. You know, we had we had Mers just pulling the strings and we knew that he wasn't going to do loads and loads of running, you know, but we knew that if we we gave him the ball, then he could conjure something from from nothing. And we were almost the supporting cast, you know, but we had, when you look at it, you had Toddy up top, you had Jakubu, so you knew you, you were going to score goals, you know, Mers in behind, in behind them, you know, myself and Steve Stone or myself and Matty Taylor on the other sides who were quick and were direct and we could, we could, deliver balls into the box, you know, and you had three absolute monsters, you know, centre-halves that, you know, quick, strong, good ability that would head anything, kick anything, and, you know, they were a real threat, you know, so I think all round, and you had Jack Angles, who was, you know, a, a top, top goalkeeper, so I think when you look through, you look throughout the team, you know, we had real, you know, a real energetic, strong mentality team, you know, and we had that that extra factor with Mers. Was that the best team you played under then that you can remember? Uh, probably, probably, yeah. You know, obviously at Portsmouth I played with Robert Prozanecki, who for me was probably one of the best players you know I've ever I've ever seen, ever played in the same team as you know. But I think that championship side for me, because I had been there through the tough times, you know, the hard times of staying up in the last game of the season, you know, being the, playing in the lower part of the, the league for the, the seasons and then seeing what it meant to the club and the fans, for me, that's that's always going to be probably my greatest achievement in football. That's incredible. Do you think Prozanecki was the best player you ever played with at Pompey? Because that's what that's what Gary O'Neill said, the man who's played for Real Madrid and Barcelona. Um, or do you think it was, was it someone else, Merce or someone else? I think for me it was, it was Robbie, just purely because he was in a team that was a poor side, you know, in general terms, in general terms. Yeah. But he was sensational. He was just, I would have loved to have, uh, been in the same team as him when he was a little bit younger. If that what if that's what he was doing at thirty two, you know he was. Yeah. You know, I remember the game he scored the hat trick. You know, when we get beat four three. Can't remember who it was against, but you know that was probably one of the one of the best single handed performances that I've seen. But for what Mers done for the team, you know the impact that Mers made, I think is probably bigger than Robbie's. But I think Robbie was certainly the best player that I had played with uh, at Portsmouth for sure they're, they're both absolute characters aren't they um, have you got any any banterous stories you can share about either of them I, th- I think with, with Robbie you know I just I remember remember one game I was running up the line and I was shouting at him I was like Robbie 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 and then at half time he just came in and he just said Kevin I see you and just pointed to the eyes you don't need to shout so that was <laughs> I, I was like right okay fair enough you know, Mers was Mers was such a character. You know, no matter no matter how how you felt or how he felt, he always he always had you in stitches. You know, just with some of his some of his stories. You know, and some of the things that he done around the training ground was 
was was uh, keep them to myself, unfortunately. But you know, he was such a character, and he lifted everyone, and everyone fed off that as well. He must have been the perfect captain at that point, just to yeah. be able to keep everything together. Yeah, he was. You know, I, I think we we take it from a captain. You always look at, you know, is is the figurehead of the team, the figurehead of the club, and I think what he done, you know. Harry bringing him, bringing him to the club was an absolute masterstroke. You know, because I don't think, I don't think anybody in their wildest dreams would have imagined they would have had such an impact as what he did in that that team. You know, in that spell that he was there. You know, so for for us, for me to have played in the same team as him is a is a real pr- privilege and honour. You know, and the fact that the fact that it was for Portsmouth makes it even better. Uh, you didn't have it always your own way, as you as you mentioned earlier, Paul. So some of the fans booed certain performances whenever your te- whenever your name was read out. There have been instances this season of players being booed. Ronan Curtis at the beginning of the season was booed off at half time when he got substituted. Do you think um, Do you think it's unfair that the fans boo players at times? Do you think it's a mental hindrance for them? For me, it wasn't. For me, it wasn't. It was their opinion. They have. They have every right to voice their opinion. You know, for me, it was about what the team knew that I brought and what the manager knew that I brought. You know, and sometimes fans don't see that and don't understand that. You know, and some do. Uh, but for me, yeah, it was disappointing. You know, you, you never ever want to hear your your name being booed when it's been read out before you've even kicked a ball. You know, but that's that's a, the fact for me that I was able to turn them around and they were singing my name come the end of the season. You know shows that they understand football, you know, and understands they appreciate what I had done. You know, so so for me it was it was about more me than than them. You know, I, I knew what I was get bringing to the team. It might not have looked might not have looked pretty. It might not have been easy on the eye, you know, but I think anybody if you ask anybody in that team, they, they always knew that I would give them a hundred percent whether I played good, bad or indifferent. And I would always work my socks off for the team. Do you think that work ethic always stood you? Did you think that work ethic would, would have eventually stood you in good stead when the fans were booing you and so on? Yeah, yeah. I think the only thing that you can do, you know, you can you can roll roll up and lie in a corner and say I don't ever want to go out there, you know. But at the end of the day, I'm part of a, I'm part of a team. I'll, I'll always work my socks off, no matter you know if I'm playing if I'm playing good, if I'm playing bad. You know, it costs nothing to work hard. You know, and that that was always been my ethic, and I think by the end of the season they understood that. You know, they understood that. By the way, this guy, you know, he might not he might not be the best player in the team, but you know, he's probably one of the bit, one of the hardest workers in the team. It's interesting because uh, we spoke to David Norris about um, you know performances and what you think about you know how fans react and how it affects the players on the pitch. If, just hypothetically, if you're two three nil down at half time, um, and the fans sort of you know give a boo of, of at half time to the players, does that have a negative effect on the dressing room, or is it something you sort of expect and and use to rally around for the second half? I think I think if you're two 0 down in any game, you you're going to expect it unless you played really really well and they've had two breakaways. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're two 0 down at half time, tends to tends to think that you've not played well. You know. You know you're not dominating the game, and I think for me, if you're if you're playing at Fratton Park, the fans expect a certain type. You know they expect you to work hard. You expect them 
he expects you to run, head, tackle, give your all. You know, they can, I definitely believe that they can deal with you losing, you know, but it's the way that you lose. You know, it's the effort. Yeah, you know, and I think that, I think if you're, if you're giving effort, then I don't think fans will ever, you know, will ever get on to you. You know, if they see you doing it, doing, you know, effort and, they can, they can, they can have, they can have their favourites. You know, I certainly probably wasn't a lot of fans' favourites. You know, at that point when I was getting booed, they probably wanted to see somebody else in the team, and I understand that. I've got no, I've got no issue with that. But probably by the the end of the season, a lot of the fans were. I was probably one of their favourite players just by what I empathise, what I brought to the team. You know, because I, I was probably the only one that whole season that. Ever it got booed to this extent that I get booed, you know, name calling out, but you know, Merce came to me and says, "Listen, Kevin, don't worry about it. We know what you're doing and what you're bringing to the team." And even the man, the manager said that as well. So, you know, when you've got your when you when your teammates know what you're doing, it gives you it gives you security and and knowing that, yeah, you might not be playing well, but you, they know that you're no matter what, you're going to give them a hundred percent. And it just shows the ethos running through the side because we just we spoke about the fact that you know Redknapp kept the lights of yourself, you know Gary O'Neill, Linvoy Primus around, and then you talk about you know what the fans expect and what the team needs as well, and and all three of you have this you know resounding commitment and, and effort and work rate, um, and it's sort of it's sort of it's interesting the link, isn't it, between the sort of you know players with that attitude that Redknapp kept around, what the fans expect, and then the ultimate success at the end of the season. Yeah, well, I think I think we I think the, the people that that Harry kept, you know, was people with good attitudes, you know, good attitudes knew the club a little bit, had been about, you know, had had saw the low times, you know, and when Harry was director of football, he probably looked a lot at what who he could keep, what we mm. were given, you know, what they what players were given, you know, and how you, how he could change it, you know, if he was. Because I'm sure he was, you know, until he, before he got the job, he was looking at, right, we need to bring these players in, we need to do this, you know. So that's that season before when he became the director of football, he was probably looking at what we done, you know, and he probably thought that, you know, myself, Gaz, Limboy and and Nige was was what he wanted, you know. Probably probably didn't think, you know, I certainly probably didn't think that I would play as many games that I did. Linvoy was probably the same, Gaz and, and Nigel, you know, because of the players that he was bringing in. But, you know, we had that we had the work ethic that, you know, everybody brought. And I think if you look at the players that Harry bought and brought in, they were players with really good work ethics and they could play as well. You know, from the back four, from Ariane, Hayden, you know, even even Shaka and then Matty Taylor, you know. Uh, Tim, Sher- Tim Sherwood, Merce, Yukubu, Toddy, you know, Gianluca Festa, Steve Stone. You know, you can go you can go right through the whole team and look at it and you go, yeah, they players will work their socks off, but there was real good quality in it as well. Talking about hard work, I'm just going to move on to your pursuit of becoming a manager effectively because... There's a lot of ex-players out there, Kevin, who really, really want to get into management. As you said, spoke to Gary Neal last week. He was talking about doing some work with the under-23s at Crystal Palace recently and you know how, how he's looking really to get into it. 
mean, you you applied for quite a few different roles, didn't you, over a time? And and how yeah. did you you know how did that go for you at the start? I put, I applied for probably about forty different roles throughout the country, Scotland and in England, uh, and got two or three three responses. Wow. Uh, and one of them was obviously where I managed just now, Albion Rovers was one, and that was the only interview that I got. That was the only interview that I got, and I managed to get the job. You know, so that pursuit of getting into management was was really difficult. You know, you get knocked back after knocked back, and you know, after after five or you know ten, you know, you, you sort of think, am I ever going to get there? But you know, the resilience that is is in me and. You know, I have to give my missus huge, huge credit for, you know, keeping me going at times, you know, and saying, no, no, just keep going, keep going. Even when I was ready to throw the towel in, you know, and I eventually got an interview and, you know, I got the job. And at the time I got the job, we were, the team was seven points. I drifted at the bottom of, of the table, part were, were part time, you know, so my first management role going into it, seven points a drift, we end with... You know, I never won a game in my first 13 uh, and ended up staying staying up with eight points. You know, at one, at one point we were seven points behind in the team of obviously three games in hand and we ended up staying staying up uh, eight points ahead of them come the end of the season. Uh, when you were applying for those roles and obviously you got knocked, knocked back a load of times, did you feel like you, you that support network that you had with... Um, your wife and so on. Do you think that was crucial for keeping that resilience up, which you had already as a player? Yeah, yeah, that's without a shadow of a doubt. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for her, then I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a manager just now. I'd have probably not even been interested in football, uh, and I would probably, if I'm honest, it would have probably been a waste. I feel that I've got a lot to give in football, uh, you know. But then that's just duty, you know, hard working. Working with the managers that I've worked under, I've been privileged to work under some top, top managers. You know, Alec Miller ended up at the assistant at Rafa Benitez, Jim Smith, obviously, uh, Steve McLaren, Harry, you know, Tony Pulis, Nigel Worthington, you know, to name a few. Uh, so I'm fortunate enough that I've, I've learned from a lot of people. Uh, and I understand, I think I understand the game more now, probably, than I did then. But, you know, as I say to all my players, it's down to hard work. You know, I will never ever question anybody's attitude. And, you know, we can all play bad. I've played bad many, many times before. You know, but if you don't give that work rate and you play bad, then there's an issue. If you're playing bad, you can still run, you can still try, you can still tackle. You know, if you do that, then people will be, people will be more forgiven. So um, how, how grateful were you for Albion Rovers for giving you that um, first opportunity in management? Because obviously you, say, you said earlier that that was the first interview you got, so you must have at least interviewed really well. <laughs> yeah, I think that's maybe one thing that I'm good at, it's interviewing. <laughs> uh, no, you, got, totally you got the gift to the gab, mate, being from Glasgow. <laughs> uh, no, to- totally, totally grateful. You know, I'll be forever grateful to Albion Rovers, whether, whether this is my first and only job, you know, my first and last job, or this is the start of of a career in management. I always I always look at Albion Rovers and be, you know, really, really proud and, you know, humbled that they gave me the opportunity to become a manager. It wasn't always um 
the best of times at Albion Rovers. I, re- I read somewhere that um, you were speaking to your goalkeeping coach, Michael Duke, after uh, at the back end of last season, and then sadly he passed away in his sleep the day afterwards. Yeah. Do you think um, that passing, as sad, as sad as it must have been for you and all the rest of the players, do you think that was the catalyst for um, the side staying up? Yeah, I think so. I think so. A lot of people say it was, you know, we got three points uh, for a team fielding an eligible player, but, you know, and people say that was a catalyst, but for for me and the group, it was certainly the passing of the goalkeeping coach, you know, for me as a manager to have to deal with that, deal with, you know, one of your staff members passing away, you know, the amount of people that I've had, I had to change, the amount of players, I think we changed 20 players, you know, in and out, like the, the Christmas, you know, the January window, uh, and then the passing of our goalkeeping coach, and that was me only in the job probably three months. You know that was the real catalyst for, you know, us staying up, and I felt that I owed I owed him a huge debt, you know, because he was so he was so good. Even when I came in a little bit down, he was the one that always brought us up, brought us up, had a joke, you know, good banter, uh, and he was he was the one that probably had the catalyst for us staying up for sure. That's without a shadow of a doubt. And you definitely showed his name massive respect, really, by you know using that as a catalyst. Um, you know, to, you know, for you guys to do so well in the season. Yeah, yeah, it was the last the last quarter. I think uh, we were probably one of the top teams. You know, performance based and points based, uh, and it was it was just such a relief to stay up. You know, and you know the day the day we we stayed up, I had to shoot away from the hospital. My my wife was in having having her fourth baby. Uh, so I had to had to shoot shoot away from from there, uh, shoot away from the game. So I didn't really celebrate because I had more important things to to contend with. Yeah, just looking on to, I mean, you guys, you've got a lot to give, mate, to both. I'd say young players breaking into the game, and as well as managers. Um, you know, former players even who want to become managers. Um, what advice would you give former players, first of all, who who are looking to get into coaching? Because I think lots of the former players we've spoken to have said about how the dynamic between a coach and his players is changing. So, you know, you've got a lot of young managers now who, you know, who are getting their break. I think um, Ian Everett, uh, Frank Lampard, you know, Gerard, whoever. Um, what do you think is is the dynamic changing between manager and players, and, and can former players who are a bit younger uh, use that to their advantage to you know to get amongst the lads and you know become a good coach? I, th- I think it, I think they can. You know, I, I think the dynamic is certainly changing. You know, you have to watch what you say to players nowadays because I think a lot of players are a, a bit fragile, a bit more fragile than what they were when I was when I was playing. You know, but I think it comes down to the it doesn't change. I don't think football's a difficult game. It doesn't change. You know, I think if if you have if you have a better better players than another team, but you don't work as hard as them, then they have an opportunity to win. You know, so for me, you can be the best the best tactical coach and have all the tactics you want. You know, but you also have to have players that are willing to run and tackle and you know have that desire that not to get beat. You know, and that's that's something that is huge for me and my and my and my thought process. You know, but you also still have to have the understanding of 
this is how we can break this down and this is how we can beat this team. You know, and I think younger managers are certainly getting the opportunity. You know, for for me as a as a black as a black person, a black manager, you know, it becomes a little bit more difficult. You know, up in Scotland when I was appointed, I was the first black manager in fifteen years in Scotland. Wow. Uh, now, now there's now there's two, which is which is really really good. Uh, you know, so for there to be fifteen years without a manager, and you know, for myself and I even look at Sol Campbell, Sol Campbell as well. He's had to start right at the bottom, you know, the same as me. Uh, and there's other managers with less credentials, certainly than Sol Campbell, starting at a much, much higher level. And you wonder why that is. Yeah. You've even got people, I suppose, uh, I'm just trying to think on the top of my head, but obviously you've got people like Harry Keel who took over at Crawley. Um, that didn't quite work out. But do you think that... Um, being a, a black man actually has a big effect then on recruitment. Is that something that you feel hinders, um, you know, black uh, guys applying for jobs and stuff in the management field? I think I think it does. I think it does. I think you know, obviously, black managers are in a minority. You know, but having said that, I don't expect to get a job because I'm black. You know, I want the equal opportunity of getting an interview. If, I always, I always put it this way, you know, if Zinedine Zidane's CV went in and Kevin Harper's CV went in and you didn't know any of the two of them, you wouldn't take Kevin Harper. You would take Zinedine Zidane because of his playing career and his, you know, management experience. But if we're just talking about playing and both Kevin Harper and Zinedine Zidane are trying to get into management, you would look at Zinedine Zidane because he has played at a better level than Kevin Harper. But what happens is, if a chairman knows Kevin Harper, then he probably will want sway towards Kevin Harper because he knows what he's about, rather than actually look at the the context of CVs and what they do. And I think that's what it is, rather than probably, I think, more, more managers get... Well, white managers are more of an opportunity than black managers. You know, I think if you look at even Chris Powell, how many jobs he's had, you know, he's had to go abroad now as assistant. You know, and there's other managers that have failed more than Chris Powell that keep getting jobs. You know, and I wonder if is that, you know, down to cut down to down to colour. There was um, a debate a long time ago. I think it was just a couple of years. I was listening to um, BBC Radio. They were talking about the Rooney rule for managers uh, because at the time, I think Chris Powell was the only black manager in um, the Football League. And um, have you heard of the Rooney rule at all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, For those who don't know, the Rooney Rooney rule is um, derived from American football where... um, uh, at the interview stage, they have they have to get a certain amount of um, managers from eth- from ethnic minority backgrounds. Yeah. Do you think the Rooney Rule? Obviously, it, it, the aim is not to prior, prior, prioritize um, just giving people of ethnic minorities jobs because of that. Do you? But do you think the Rooney Rule can encourage more people to apply to to apply for these managerial coaching roles? I don't. I don't think it will. I think it's a technical tick box exercise in my mm. opinion. You know, because, you know, why should I get an interview purely because of colour? So you're then discriminating against other people, other ethnic walks in life. You know, for me it should be about 
who has the best credentials, you know, whether they're black, white, you know, Asian, whatever, you know, no matter girl, you know, man, who has the best credentials? That's what it should come down to. You know, have have you got have you got the best credentials to get an interview, most importantly? You know, and then if you get an interview, then that's an opportunity to, for you to sell yourself. Are you capable of taking, are you good enough to sell yourself and what you can do for that particular club? You know, at the end of the day, if I get interviewed for Portsmouth, am I capable of going into Portsmouth and saying, this is what I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to do it? You know, and I think for me, that's what it should be about. It should be about the person with the credentials that you speak to, that you genuinely believe after interview, whether they are the right fit for your your football club or not, or they can they can take your they you believe that they can take your football club to where you want to go. And just just um, touching on something you just said there, you said about. I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying, and I think. You know, you'd hope really in in 2020 that you know people will be able to, you know, get appointed on a job purely based on their their technical ability, their personality, and you know the person that they are. But you just mentioned there that you know if you interview for Portsmouth, then I, I really do believe that you know Pompey really could do with a coach, um, and you know even going forward in in some time manager who who understands the club and understands the fans and the expectations of the club, which we've been talking about now for the last 45 minutes, you know, would you be interested in, in the future, not, not saying now in, in coming down and working either as a coach or as a manager eventually at Portsmouth? A million percent. That's not even, that's, I don't even have to think about that. That's, that's something that for me would be the pinnacle of my management career. If I could ever go back to Portsmouth in any capacity, to work with the club and see, you know, how where we could go, you know, because it's the the potential that Portsmouth have, you know, I know the club have been there, I know what the fans want, you know, if I would ever have the opportunity, you know, I know people say this a lot of times, you know, if I if I didn't have enough money for the train or the or the plane, I would get my walking shoes on and start walking. I'll come pick you up, mate. It's all right. It can't, it can't. It can't take that long to go to get up there. I mean, I'm going to Wales tomorrow, so you know, it's, it's not. It's not that much different to get up to Scotland nowadays, is it? Um, we'll just close off quickly with a question that um, one of the listeners sent in. Um, cheers, Hazel. Again, appreciate it. She says, "What factors contribute to when a side can play so well as a team one match, but then struggle to gel in the next game?" If I knew that, you know, I would be saying that to our players. Um, I, I think, <laughs> I think it, I think there's there's lots of, you know, outside factors that people don't, you know, that aren't footballers don't understand. You know, it's the, I think nowadays people see the money that's involved in football and they think that, you know, wow, they should be getting there, getting this. There's no pressure here. There's no pressure there. You know, we forget that footballers are finely tuned, tuned athletes. You know, and sometimes any any little thing, any little kink throws them out of sync. You know, but I think it's sometimes it's a mentality thing. You know, you do so you, you ride the wave of doing so well one week, you know, and you maybe you maybe don't you maybe don't prepare the same way the following week because you've done so well the previous week and then you know you you 
you have diff- your thought process is very different. You know, think footballers are very well. Certainly, I was. I was a creature of habit. You know, I tried to do things the same way day in day out, and and that's the way. You know, if I if I done really well, then I would, I would do the same thing for the the week. You know, and get back to try and think mentally. You know, and psychologically, what did I do? How can I do better? You know, at the end of the day, I think some footballers just rest in their laurels and go, well, I played well this this week, so I don't have to do what I done last week because I'll just continue and it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. And I think that's the, that's the most baffling thing, how you can play so well one week and you can play not at that peak week in, week out. And I suppose... When you look at the very, very top players, they do that week in, week out, week in, week out, and that's why they are at the very top. No, absolutely, mate. I, I can I completely understand that. But I think some people also forget that, you know, how difficult it is to, you know, how competitive football is, I suppose, and, you know, how many people want to become a professional footballer um, and, you know, to, meet, to get into any sort of semi-pro level, um, up to pro level, you've got to be an outstanding athlete. And I think that, having that drive and that preparation is is really shows where the the cream comes to the top as they say yeah i think i think anyone anyone that gets paid for playing football should be really proud of what they what they've done you know because there's so many there's so many players that don't get paid and just play just because they love it they absolutely love the game you know and that's for me whether it's Ten pounds, whether it's a million pounds, you know, you should always be happy that you're actually getting paid to do something that a lot of the majority of people would bite your hand off for. You know, and I don't think, I don't yeah. think really, I don't think players really, really understand that. You know, and really get that that they're in such a privileged position that so many people would want to do that. No, completely. Kevin, mate, it's been absolutely awesome having you on the podcast. Um, I just want to say that, you know, as well as being, you know, a great player for Pompey as well, you're also a smashing lad as well. So uh, it's been great talking to you for the last 50 minutes. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. Love it. Thank you so much, mate. I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. We'll see if we can get you and uh, a few of the players on together and we'll have, a, we'll have a chat about something topical as the season closes. Yeah, perfect. That would be great. Oh, no before... Before I before I let you go, mate, uh, I did the same to Gary O'Neill. Would you mind giving us a little jingle and saying, um, "I'm Kevin Harper, and you're listening to the PO Forecast." Yeah, I'm Kevin Harper. You're listening to PO Forecast. Hope you enjoy it. Perfect, mate. Thank you so much. Really appreciate. It. I'll let you get off now. Um, have a great evening. It's been a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you, Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again to Kevin Harper for coming on the podcast absolute gentleman as well as an awesome footballer and um, it was great hearing from him wasn't it freddie absolutely yeah it was uh, very surreal to talk to somebody who um i grew up watching at a certain time uh, being four years old watching watching that um division one winning side it was amazing yeah so uh you youngster mate so i know, um, you know, I know. T- t- 10 years on you mush <laughs> that's it mate i was sitting i was sitting on the beach you know throwing pebbles into into the water remember in devon with matt he's been on the podcast thinking about you know this might actually be the first time i thought pompey had a, a good chance of getting promoted so it's good memories mate but let's crack on let's go for it we need to preview the amazing game against accrington stanley and freddie let's be honest 
that was a shit performance against Fleetwood, wasn't it? It was. Uh, I think I'd prefer the term frustrating. <laughs> it was very, very frustrating. I was. I was on Love Sport Radio afterwards as I was watching the game, but just before the final whistle. And the problem was, it was the usual frustrating ports of performance where they only conceded because of two defensive errors, completely unavoidable. Le- le- leaving Suter at the back post on his own. Uh, yeah, it was a depressing performance, but also he didn't create anything going forward. I don't know what's happened ever since, even with the uh, Milton Keynes-Dons game and the Rochdale game, ports of going forward now look dreadful. Even it, it doesn't matter which personnel it is, the midfield gets bypassed a lot. It seems the players are now panicking on the ball. Not, there's no patience anymore. They're always looking for that killer pass and trying to force it all the time. And that's been a problem now for nearly two seasons and it's frustrating and it's getting to the point where Porsche fans are arguing about oh what's the point if we get to the championship with this side we'll just get relegated again and all the negative thoughts uh, are coming back again even even though they played so well earlier in the se- at January with that win streak and it's um it's frustrating to see honestly no it is right Freddie we've got about three minutes to, to sum up this game so let's get straight into it Accrington Stanley are a team that, you know, create a lot of goal scoring opportunities. We we're speaking before the podcast that they're, you know, they're currently third in the expected goals table. Um, even though what, they're what, right what? down in the bottom. Yeah, one thing though, guess which team are second. I'm gonna go with Tranmere. <laughs> no, no, us. Ports of a second Ports of a second in the XG table, which oh, for no. those which for those who don't know, XG just measures quality of chances created by a team. <clears throat> obviously doesn't measure actual goals and results and so on, but it's just a good indicator to see how good ports are, how good teams are going forward. And even though we've chatted earlier about ports of being slightly inept going forward, they have, they have created the second best amount of quality chances in the league and have scored enough goals relative to their XG as well. So they're about on target with the 53 goals they've scored and put it this way, Fleetwood, not Fleetwood, Peterborough, they have a lower XG than Portsmouth, 53.5, but they scored 68 goals this season. And that just goes to show the quality that they have up front. For example, Ivan Tony and Dembele, those players don't need a nailed-on scoring chance to put the ball in the back of the net. They needed a half chance, and that was probably why they've been doing very well this season. But yeah, Accrington going forward, very hard team. To, it'll be a very hard team to deal with. You got Colby Bishop up front. He scored two goals against Pompey already in the season. I think he looks it looks a good signing for them coming out of non-league. Accrington Stanley seem to find these absolute gem players from nowhere. So many um, gem players. Uh, even even a, a Poku on loan, towering left back, but also has the ability to go forward. They're, they're going to be no pushovers at all. I was at that away game at Accrington in Accrington, and my God, I know Portsmouth were terrible, and that was the narrative. But Accrington played excellently that game, controlled the midfield completely with Sean McConville in the middle, and most of their chances just came from incisive counter-attacking through balls through the middle. And hopefully Portsmouth can deal with that. But as we've seen in the last couple of games, when attackers when attackers run at Portsmouth's defence a lot, they do struggle. Obviously, we've got Christian Burgess to come back into the side at centre-back, which I think is going to make a massive, massive difference. That stability at the back, the leader at the back, as well as uh, for his technical ability, just his ability to organise the defence, provide some stability. Uh, I think it's going to be huge in this game. 
I think that'll help us, um, you know, with our defensive capabilities. I have actually gone and done a podcast yesterday, previewing this game, Freddie, for about an hour um, with some guys, with our friends from um, across the pond podcast. So what I'm going to say now is, Freddie, we're going to go to it and just do our predictions because let's be honest, we're running out of time now on the podcast. So Freddie, who do you think is going to score? What's the, what's the goal? Give me your predictions for this game. God, I think it'll be an exciting game. But a disappointing game. I think it'll be a two-all draw. Ellis Harrison will score one alongside Ronan Curtis, but then Colby Bishop will get two to make it two-all. Okay, I'm going for a more enthusiastic 3-1 win for Pompey. Yeah, always the optimist. I think the team will bounce back in this game. You know, we've had a couple of tough games, um, as we know, away from home one and then coming back at home against a very good Fleetwood side. And although it's a little bit disappointing, um, well, more than a little bit disappointing, at the same time, Accrington don't travel well and I expect us to pick up three points and manage to get three goals all right Freddie mate thank you again for coming on the podcast it's no, awesome. it's a pleasure pleasure as always always enjoy coming on yeah and thanks again for to Kevin Harper for coming on the podcast and yeah stay tuned because we might and we just try to tie up the details but we might have a a, a different guest again uh for for next week so Yep, listen out, Poppy fans, and we'll try and give you some more information. But thanks for listening, and until next time, play out, Pompey. You have been listening to the PO Forecast for Pompey News Now, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Follow PO Forecast at Pompey News Now on Twitter for more information. And there is the full-time whistle. <laughs>